Chapter 4, Part B. Women of America by John Roos Laris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. It was on November 11, 1620, that the Pilgrim Fathers, as they have come to be known to history, united in an agreement which was the foundation of constitutional government in America. They had been brought, rather, as it seemed, by divine providence than by their own guidance, to a more northern shore than that for which they had intended voyaging, and they had determined to make that place their colonial abode. Tradition records that the first to step on the famous Plymouth Rock was a woman, Mary Chilton by name, and the circumstance has brought her name down to us of this day. It would not seem a difficult manner of attaining immortality, that of stepping from a boat to a rock. Most women, being gifted with the ordinary means of locomotion, could do as much, but circumstances decide the value of every action and so Mary Chilton achieved fame by one of the simplest and most natural acts of her whole existence. There are those who deny the very existence of Mary Chilton, and sneer at the tradition that makes a woman lead the way to the fluorescence of American nationality, and it must be confessed that Mary Chilton, having taken the step which was to preserve her from forgetfulness, disappears as completely as if she had never lived but we like to think the legend true, for it was most appropriate that a woman should head the march to that land where women were destined to be such a controlling force, and where, as in no other country, women were to lead in many of the greatest movements that have crowned the civilization of our own day. One likes to believe in Mary Chilton, and it is something in favor of the story that the name of James Chilton is found attached to the document which has already been referred to and that it would be quite in keeping with puritan superstition to send a young and pure maiden before them as their advance guard into the unknown land which was to be won by strength of soul as well as of arm at least we know that there were women and those in due proportion among the settlers the total number of pilgrims has always been stated as small and the Mayflower, their little vessel, is said to have been but one hundred and eighty tons burden, but it is evident that there has been error in both of these matters, judging by the large number of New Englanders whose ancestors came over on the Mayflower. If half these genealogical tracings are founded on fact, the supposed tiny Mayflower must have been the forerunner of our present huge ocean liners but be this as it may we have record that the first of these many descendants was born on the day following the arrival of the vessel it was not a girl this time as had been the case with the first child born of english parents on virginia soil it was a boy and he was appropriately named peregrine which signifies pilgrim while not directly germane to our subject save so far as having been born of woman makes all men contributory to the history of women, it may be interesting to state that this first child of the pilgrims lived to the age of eighty-three years and died at Marshfield, where later died the greatest of New Englanders. 
the influence of the women of the colonists was doubtless great in maintaining the courage and constancy of the men but as was the case with the early settlers in virginia we have little or no particular record of the feminine portion of the settlement we are told of priscilla the puritan maiden in longfellow's poem the courtship of miles standish and we are entirely at liberty to encounter a real personage if we desire to do so it is at least certain that miles standish was the valiant captain pictured by the poet and that john alden to whom the poet ascribes the office of deputy wooer was one of the pilgrim fathers whether in the latter in s or in Ficoro, we are not told though knowledge on this point might have bearing upon the authenticity of the story of priscilla and if the rest of the legend is not true it is at least well imagined moreover it may be asserted that it is true in the deeper sense of truth whether or not it be loyal to mere fact the picture drawn for us of the puritan maiden is typically true and therefore worthy of quotation even in a volume dedicated to the muse of history rather than to her of posy ever of her he thought when he read in his bible on sunday praise of the virtuous woman as she is described in the proverbs how the heart of her husband doth safely trust in her always how all the days of her life she will do him good and not evil how she seeketh the wool and the flax and worketh with gladness how she layeth her hand to the spindle and holdeth the distaff how she is not afraid of the snow for herself or her household knowing her household are clothed with the scarlet cloth of her weaving for there were no idle butterflies of fashion no languid great dames these wives and daughters of the pilgrims their hands knew the rush of the thread on the wheel the touch of the distaff and were even not unacquainted at need with the weight of musket and bird-gun they were cast to some extent in the fine old spartan mould these pilgrim mothers they feared god and nothing else and they bent their energies to their performance of their sole aspiration that of doing their duty in that state of life to which it had pleased god to call them it was a state of life that held peril and toil and little reward for these things but they cared nothing for this these splendid pilgrim dames but lived their lives bravely and died with the consciousness that they had done their best to make noble the birth of a new land which should shelter their children forever the first authentic record that we have of an individual woman in the time of the first northern settlement comes to us in the shape of a death as the first feminine name of the roanoke settlers came to us connected with a birth it was in sixteen thirty when the settlement of massachusetts bay had begun to take some aspect of permanency that there came into its harbor a fleet of some ten or eleven ships the flagship a vessel of three hundred and fifty tons being named the arabella she was thus called because of the presence on board of lady arabella johnson wife of a commoner called isaac johnson 
the pair had come to america to breathe a purer atmosphere of freedom in religion than they had been able to find at home but lady arabella was not destined long to enjoy the liberty she sought the words of cotton mather may be quoted in regard to her the first of noble blood to succumb to the rigors of the new climate of those who soon died after their first arrival not the least considerable was the lady arabella who left an earthly paradise in the family of an earldom to encounter the sorrows of a wilderness for the entertainments of a pure worship in the house of god and then immediately left that wilderness for the heavenly paradise whereto the compassionate jesus of whom she was a follower called her we have read concerning a noble woman of bohemia who forsook her friends her plate her house and all and because the gates of the city were guarded crept through the common sewer that she might enjoy the institutions of our lord at another place where they might be had the spirit which acted that noble woman we may suppose carried this blessed lady thus to and through the hardships of an american desert but as for her virtuous husband isaac johnson esq he tried to live without her liked it not and died his mourning for the death of his honourable consort was too bitter to be extended a year about a month after her death his ensued unto the extreme loss of the whole plantation there is much cause for smiling especially in old dr mather's unconscious snobbery as to the paradise of an earldom even to italicizing the important word and to his wonder how any one could leave such delights for the goal of a desert but there is also some moving if equally unconscious pathos and for this as well as for the fact of lady arabella's being the first feminine name to come down to us from plymouth in the dignity of history her virtues and fate are here recorded moreover that otherwise unfamed lady from bohemia who left her plate behind her in search for religious liberty deserves to be rescued from oblivion in the same vessel that brought lady arabella to the inhospitable shores of america there came another woman whose name may better deserve memorial as far as is concerned lasting influence of life than does that of the saintly lady commemorated by cotton mather anne dudley was the daughter of an old servitor of the count of lincoln the father of lady arabella and was herself married to simon bradstreet destined to be governor of massachusetts she was as devout and devoted as lady arabella herself and she was of yet finer stamp in that she was a poet she was a puritan of the puritans her father was later elected to be governor of the colony preceding his son-in-law in that distinguished position so that anne bradstreet must have been from the beginning of her life permeated with the very spirit of puritanism one would not think that such training and environment would be favorable to the fostering of the poetic faculty severity of creed and the aesthetic soul do not often go hand in hand 
yet she was the first professional poet of New England, indeed probably of America, and if fault be found for calling her a poet of America when she was not a native product, answer may be made in that the New Englanders strenuously claimed her as their own under the title of the Tenth Muse, and that she was, if not a product of the soil of Massachusetts, at least a product of the spirit that made that soil sacred. She was very young, not yet twenty, when she arrived at Plymouth, and most of her poems were written during the first decade of her residence in the colony. Since in this portion of our history there are few feminine names upon which to expatiate, it may not be a waste of space to give in full the title page of the first volume of the poems issued by the American Sappho. The Tenth Muse lately sprung up in America, or several poems compiled with great variety of wit and learning, full of delight, wherein especially is contained a complete discourse and the description of the four elements, constitutions, ages of man, seasons of the year, together with an exact epitome of the four monarchies, the Assyrian, Persian, Grecian, Roman, also a dialogue between old England and new concerning the late troubles, with divers other pleasant and serious poems, by a gentlewoman in those parts, printed at London for Stephen Botwell, at the sign of the Bible in Pope's Head Alley, 1650. It will be noticed that the gifted poet was forced to have recourse to her native land to produce her works, and it may be for the repute of her modesty, it is to be hoped that it was that she never saw the title page until it had been printed. However, it would seem that there were many of her time who believed that she had some just cause to claim the title which had been given her. One of her admirers wrote in more or less admirable verse a long compliment to her, which contained the notable, though undeniably plagiarized line, None but herself must dare commend her parts, apart from its too close resemblance to none but himself could be his parallel. It strikes one that Mrs. Bradstreet's admirer pays a poor compliment to the lady's modesty, however he may praise her ability. And another and abler critic, the Reverend Nathaniel Ward, takes occasion in paying his respects to the singer to cast a slur upon her sex. It half revives my chill frost-bitten blood to see a woman once do aught that's good, which could hardly be described as a fulsome praise. It must be remembered that in those days it was rare to see a woman attempt anything with a pen, and the prologue to the volume contains some deprecatory reference to this state of affairs. I am obnoxious to each carping tongue who says my hand a needle better fits, a poet's pen all scorn I thus should wrong, for such despite they cast on females' wits. If what I do prove well, it won't advance. They'll say it's stolen, or else it was by chance. 
this strikes the judicious reader as better sarcasm than poetry and indeed when one looks through the volume it is difficult to understand the enthusiasm roused by the production it is a very ambitious affair the elements as promised by the title page have a great deal to say and most of it is said in the right urkel's vein here for example is the manner in which fire ends her little speech what shall i say of lightning and thunder which kings and mighty ones amaze with wonder which makes a caesar rome's the world's proud head foolish caligula creep unders a bed and in a word the world i shall consume and all therein at that great day of doom this is not impressive and we may gladly skip the rest of the remarks made by the elements the second quaternion of poems as shown by the title page is concerned with the four ages of man wherein the first age exclaims what gripes of wind mine infancy did pain what tortures i in breeding teeth sustain which is very excellent realism but not highly poetical either in sentiment or expression the seasons have but little more claim to a hearing than the elements and in the poem on the four monarchies which is merely a rhymed version of raleigh's history of the world the only notable lines are those containing mrs bradstreet's defence of her sex now say have women worth or have they none or had they some but with our queen it's gone nay masculines you have thus taxed us long but she though dead will vindicate our were wrong let such as say our sex is void of reason notice slander now but once was treason the queen to whom these lines refer is of course elizabeth and we can well believe that in her day so to asperse the sex as to decline to admit their possession of the attribute of reason may well have been treason sufficient if reported to the highest quarter to be punished by the terrible pen for it a deroule although we may entirely sympathize with mrs bradstreet's vigorous defence of her sex from the foul slanders of the masculines it is difficult to see wherein she makes good her claim to be considered the tenth muse or the hundred and tenth if so many could be named nevertheless at her death sermons laudatory of her life and work were preached to nearly every church in new england and her afflicted family must have been greatly comforted by the number and expression of the eulogies with which they were fairly deluged here is a specimen from the pen of the rev john norton a funeral eulogy upon that pattern and patron of virtue the truly pious peerless and matchless gentlewoman mrs anne bradstreet right panorats mirror of her age glory of her sex whose heaven-born soul leaving its earthly shrine chose its native home and was taken to its rest upon the sixteenth of september sixteen seventy two all of which strikes us as a little hyperbolic while the phrase 
patron of virtue, does not appear as very happily chosen, and the reference of the reverend gentleman in the body of his poem to the day, black, fatal, dismal, inauspicious day, would be a little overdone if applied to a general catastrophe. Yet even this balderdash is of interest, as showing us the estimate in which was held America's first woman of letters, the first at least to attain note, and thus worthy, in that respect at least, to be held as patron saint by all the lady writers of our day and country. There were a few other women writers during the period of settlement, but they were very few. As may be gathered from the tenor of the quoted lines from Anne Bradstreet's prologue, the spirit of Puritanism was opposed to literary pursuits by a woman, at least to the degree of a profession. Indeed, it is probable that there was widespread sympathy with the sentiments of the chronicler of the following incident, in which it is to be seen the regard in which were held feminine literati. The governor of Hartford, upon Connecticut, came to Boston and brought his wife with him, a godly young woman of special parts, who was fallen into a sad infirmity, the loss of her understanding and reason, which had been growing upon her diverse years by occasion of giving herself wholly to the reading and writing, and had written many books. Her husband, being very loving and tender of her, was loath to grieve her, but he saw his error when it was too late, for if she had attended to her household affairs, and such things as belonged to the women, and not gone out of her way and calling, to meddle in such things as are proper for men, whose minds are stronger, she had kept her wits, and might have improved them usefully and honorably, in the place God had set her. It was Governor Winthrop, whose domestic affliction arose from such a strange cause, and it was not unlikely that he inspired the words here set down. At all events, the comments are amusing. If all the women now writing books were to suffer like penalty with Mistress Winthrop, the insane asylums would have to be considerably enlarged. But authorship seems to have grown less fatal to the fair sex of late years. For the rest, we must regard these mothers of the country in the mass rather than as individuals. And this is in accord with their true natures. They were not given to brawling in the streets or to contention upon the housetops. These women of the old Puritans they did their duties in their household and left the management of the weightier affairs of the young colony to the men. Yet they guided these same men in ways which they hardly knew, and they were in all ways fitted to be the mothers of the nation, which was even then beginning to stretch its infant arms in growing strength. They were grave, decorous, and terribly strong, those wives and daughters of the pilgrims. They took upon themselves the cares of the household, and these were not slight in those days 
when all provision must be garnered by the sweat of the eater's brow. There were then no shops to which one might send in search of luxuries or even necessities. The Puritan woman usually brought with her on her ship some store of household goods, some chests of clothing, some plate perhaps to furnish forth her table, for all the rest she depended upon the energy and skill of her husband, the work of her own hands, and the blessing of that God to worship whom in freedom she and hers had sought the wilderness as their home. And the spirit of that wilderness entered into her as she dwelt in its boundaries. She drew from its breast some of its quiet strength and truth, even as the aborigines had imbibed from these qualities in their long communion with nature at her best. There was to come a time, and that right soon, when the reclamation of the wilderness should have so far progressed that there would be town life, on its borders at least, and the Puritan woman would lose some of the qualities which had been imparted to her by the land to which she had come as an alien and where she remained as a daughter. But until the coming of that time, she was true to the inspiration of the country in which her lot was cast. America was then a land of mystery. Back from the Atlantic stretched miles upon miles of untrodden, unknown wood and plain and hill and lake and river. And the power of the unknown was felt over that little strip of coast, which acknowledged, though not in entire subjection, the control of the white race. So the pilgrim mother had ever the sense of the mysterious, the unfathomable, pressing upon her, ever ready to whisper new secrets in her ear, and though she was, as a rule, stern and unimaginative, she was more profoundly affected by this mystery than she knew. It was to bear terrible fruit in after-time in the horrors of Salem witchcraft, but for the present it only tried and proved and hardened the courage of the women who faced it with confidence in the strength of their husbands and in the protection of their God. So to New England and Virginia there came the founders of a race led forth from home by different motives, bringing different qualities of body and mind and spirit to the formation of the people, but both foundations possessing strength upon which could be built a mighty nation. And not the men of Jamestown or Roanoke, with their fighting and their tilling, not the pilgrim fathers, with their stern courage and their straight creed, but the women of Virginia and the pilgrim mothers were those to whom must look that new nation for all its best. It was not the blood of kings and princes that came to vitalize this our land in the period of its rescue from the dominion of the lesser races, but the blood of yeomen and peasants sprung from generations of fighters with the soil rather than with men, yet soldiers too, and so in all ways fitted for the battles they must wage with men and beasts and the earth itself ere they could win an empire for their race 
and this blood comes down to us through the women of that day, the mothers of a nation. End of chapter 4, part B.